0: Everyone and welcome to episode 110 of the New Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercogliano of the USA Today Network. And we are here to, at a much earlier date than I think a lot of us were anticipating, put a bow on this 2022-23 New York Rangers season. I know a lot of you are sad. I know a lot of you are feeling pretty down about the way that this season ended. We're going to get into all of that. I want to start by thanking the guy who submitted this week's intro track that you just heard, Tom Dianora. So, Tom, thank you very much. I appreciate it. We are down to only one more new intro track that you guys will hear on the next episode. And then we're going to have to make a decision about how we move forward. But I'm not going to go too deep into that. I know that's probably the last thing you guys want to talk about today. Let's get right into it. I've been home all day today, which is a really weird feeling after seven and a half months of go, go, go. But that's the reality. The reality is setting in for everybody right now. And it's an especially harsh reality for the New York Rangers, who blew a 2 to nothing series lead In their first round matchup with the New Jersey Devils, they lost four out of the last five games in that series, and they finished it up on Monday night with game seven, which there's really no other way to put it. That was a total dud performance from the Rangers. They were essentially run out of the building at the Prudential Center. They were shut out four to nothing. The second time in the three game span that they were shut out. It was a pretty listless effort from them in that final game. Kind of embarrassing in a lot of ways, given the expectations and the high hopes that this group had. Not saying that they gave up necessarily or anything like that. I actually think the game five loss at the end when they were outshot 20-2 to in that final period was a much worse look for them. But when you consider the stakes, you consider the moment, You consider everything that they had poured into making this season a success to go out with a 4 to nothing shutout loss like that against what now you have to say is definitely going to be one of the Rangers' biggest rivals in the coming years. We obviously know the history with the Rangers and the Devils. This was the seventh time that they met in the playoffs, but they hadn't met in the playoffs in over 10 years. And now this rivalry, I think, has been renewed. Both of these teams look like they're going to be good for a while. And so maybe we'll have more playoff battles to come. But this one, and I've talked to you guys about this before, and I've written about this before. The Devils were the higher seed. I understand that. But the Rangers, to me, had to be the favorite in this series because of everything that we saw them pour into trying to make this season a championship season, going out and getting Patrick Kane at the deadline, getting Vladimir Tarasenko at the deadline coming off that run to the Eastern Conference Finals last year, all of the star power up and down this lineup, all of the talk about wanting to get back to the playoffs and all of the expectations that were on this group, they fell flat by not making it out of the first round. And going seven games against a difficult opponent, and we're going to talk about some of the things that the Devils did well, that is, for a lot of situations and a lot of teams, Certainly nothing to hang your head about, but trust me, from talking to the Rangers and the players in the locker room and seeing their reaction to this loss in the last few days, they're devastated. This is not the way that anybody envisioned this ending, and now there are going to be repercussions. There are going to be questions going into a much longer summer than they were hoping for, and I know that a lot of you were hoping for. We're going to talk about the coaching situation. We're going to talk about some individual players. My plan for this episode is to play clips from Breakup Day, which was on Wednesday at the MSG Training Center. That's when players are cleaning out their lockers and essentially reporting for the final time. They all do their exit interviews with team president and general manager Chris Drury, and they all speak to the media for the final time. We spoke to every guy who played in the playoffs. So it was a long day of talking to a lot of different guys, but you really appreciate them making the time to do it. And it was our chance to get some final thoughts from them on on what the heck just happened. How did it go down this way? So I did this last year. I think it worked really well. So I want to do it again for this week's episode. I know we got a lot of good feedback last year. I picked out five different interviews of which I thought were especially interesting or important for a variety of reasons. And we cut some of the most striking quotes, some of the best clips from those interviews. And over the course of this episode, I'm going to play a clip. You'll hear from a guy. I'll explain context and what the question was and and what the answer was about. And then after you hear it, I'll talk about what I made of their answer and maybe some, some big picture stuff for those individuals. But let's start with some big picture stuff for the team. And from a team standpoint, there's a lot to analyze, a lot to decipher, a lot to consider now that we saw the Rangers go out in the fashion that they did. To me, and this was the lead to my final story at the end of game seven, speed was one of the things that I came away thinking about first and foremost. That devil's team, a lot of people will tell you they're one of the fastest teams in the NHL, if not the fastest team in the NHL, and that speed that they have over the course of the series became more and more apparent and more and more difficult for the Rangers to deal with. They ran circles around the Rangers. If you look at the five-on-five play in those last, really, four games, but I felt like especially in the last three, it just seemed like the Rangers couldn't keep pace with them. It seemed like the Devils were smothering them it seems like the Devils' confidence just kept elevating and kept elevating. And while they were getting better, the Rangers kept getting worse. And I think a lot of that has to be credit to the Devils. The Devils had their way, whether it was the forecheck and the way that they were able to hound pucks and make it really difficult for the Rangers to get out of their own zone or get through the neutral zone. The Devils did a really good job of clogging up the neutral zone. And then on the rare occasions when the Rangers did get into the offensive zone, I thought the Devils did an increasingly better job of getting in shot lanes. If you look at their block shots numbers over the course of the series, those kept getting better and better as well. We also saw the adjustments that the Devils made on the penalty kill after they got burned by Chris Kreider in those first couple games for four goals on the power play. And it looked like the Rangers couldn't be stopped. The Devils really shut them down in those situations the rest of the way, did a really good job of taking Kreider away at the net front and then not getting beat in other areas. And, And that was also about using their speed and pressuring the puck and being aggressive. That was something that we heard Lindy Ruff talk about time and time again throughout this series, puck pressure, puck pressure, puck pressure. And the Devils were excellent at that. And the result was they dominated possession. Again, you look at those last few games at five on five, You could probably count on one at most two hands, how many really long offensive zone possessions the Rangers had at even strength. For the most part, the Devils had the puck. The Devils had the Rangers pinned in their own zone. And in transition, we saw what the Devils were able to do when they were able to get that speed going. And as the Rangers started to press, we saw more turnovers come into play. And then we saw those odd man rushes happening. And the Devils are excellent in those situations as well. You look at some of the analytics for this series. They all lean heavily in favor of the Devils at 5-on-5. The high danger scoring chances tally was like double in the Devils' favor. I think it was like 120 to like 60-something. So the Devils at 5-on-5 were clearly the better team than the Rangers. And the result was the Rangers' offense completely dried up. You look at those four losses. They only scored two goals in the four losses. Two of the games, they had one goal apiece. Two of the games, they got shut out. Now, Akira Schmidt, the rookie goalie for the Devils, was a good story. He had some good games, especially Game 7. I thought he was really good in Game 7. But there was also the fact that the Rangers didn't test him a lot. And a lot of the players will openly tell you that. I know a lot of them spoke about that over the course of the series. And again, that goes back to the Devils hounding them and making it really difficult for them to possess the puck. When you don't have the puck, you can't shoot the puck. So that was a problem for the Rangers throughout this series. And when you sum it up, you look at all the star power, Kane, Tarasenko, Artemi Panarin, Mika Zabanajad, Adam Fox, that star power did not equate to a well-balanced team for the Rangers. Gerard Glantz said it after that Game 7 loss. You can have all the talent you want, But if the talent doesn't work together and play like a team and mesh in the right way, then what is that talent really worth? I mentioned harsh realities at the top of the show. Well, here's a harsh reality that now that the Rangers have had this early exit and are going to have to look in the mirror and it's going to give us all way too much time to overanalyze everything. Here's a reality that we've talked about a lot in the last two years, but we've also sort of swept it under the rug at times because of the fact that the Rangers were winning and having success. But they've been a mediocre five-on-five team for really two seasons in a row. You could even go further back than that, but I'm mostly looking at these two seasons when they've been a playoff team. Goaltending and special teams have been excellent for the most part. They've covered up. Those blemishes at five on five when you have arguably the best goalie in the world and when you have a power play and a penalty kill that have been as effective as the Rangers have been the last two seasons, you can find ways to win even when you're consistently being outchanced and outplayed at five on five. Now, Igor was great again in this series. We're going to talk about him more later in the show. But the power play after getting off to that strong start, it went ice cold. In the final five games. So, when you're not getting both of those things, the goaltending which they had, the special teams which they didn't have, then you can't afford to be mediocre at five on five. You look at the numbers for the Rangers this season, go to Natural Stat Trick, that's where I referenced for my story the other day. The Rangers ranked 22nd in their expected goals rate out of 32 teams in the NHL. So, that's mediocre, if not more toward the back of the pack as far as their five-on-five play is concerned. And unless they remedy that, it's going to be really difficult for them to have sustained success. Does that mean they can't be an annual playoff team? Of course not. But we're talking about what it's going to take for them to win a Stanley Cup. And at five-on-five, they didn't really have many guys, if any, who were able to step up. Kreider, of course, finishes with six goals. Now, most of those were on the power play, but... Hard to knock him for what he did in this series. He was the only guy who offered them any consistent scoring, but everybody else disappointed. Mika Zabanajad only scored one goal. Patrick Kane had the one good game with three points in game two, but other than that, he was very quiet in this series. Adam Fox started strong, then cooled off, and, and he had a rough night in game seven. He was very open and honest about that when we spoke to him on Wednesday. Of course, the big moment everyone will point to is that very, very costly turnover that he had. It just looked uncharacteristic for him. It was kind of a lack of awareness there. The Rangers are on the power play in their own zone, trying to to move the puck back up ice and get into the offensive zone. And he just didn't seem to notice that Andre Palat was right there and he picked his pocket and it led to a shorthanded goal for the Devils, which was a huge, huge backbreaker for the Rangers in that game seven. You look at the kid line. A big key to this series was going to be them winning their matchup. We felt like the top six for the Rangers and the Devils were pretty evenly matched, so you were going to need the bottom six for the Rangers to make a big difference, and they didn't. The fourth line didn't show up the way that you were hoping them to, and the kid line was pretty quiet. I mean, they had their moments, but they didn't produce many points. Alexi Lafreniere finished that series with zero points, which is bringing a lot of heat down on him. And the guy who's getting the most heat right now is Artemi Panarin, who was a major disappointment in this series. Only finished with two assists, zero goals, and he didn't have any points at all in the final six games of this series. We're going to talk a lot more about him later in the show as well. But, point being, when all those guys aren't living up to their standards and aren't playing up to the way that you know they're capable of playing, That's going to be a really difficult way to win a series, especially against a swarming, speedy team like the Devils. I think one of the lessons learned here is that the Rangers just ended up being a little too redundant. They didn't have enough diversity in this lineup, especially in this forward group. It feels to me like they got caught stargazing, and a lot of us are guilty for this. You hear names like Patrick Kane and Vladimir Tarasenko, and of course you want to have them on your team because of their reputations. But they focused on making these big splashes instead of building a balanced team. It was very much the opposite approach from what we saw last year. Last season, what did the Rangers do at the trade deadline? They acquired four guys just like they did at this trade deadline, but those guys weren't household names. Certainly not star-level players, but they filled very specific roles, and they fit what the Rangers were trying to do. In getting Andrew Copp, they were able to get a headsy player who was able to succeed in a lot of different areas. He could chip in some offense. We saw that, but he was also a really good, sound defensive player, a pretty decent skater. He could play multiple positions. There was a lot of versatility there. And Frank Vetrano definitely brought that speed element, definitely brought that shoot first mentality and fit a specific role that the Rangers needed him. And who would have thought the Rangers were better off with Cop and Vitrano than they were with Kane and Tarasenko? But based on the results, it's hard to argue otherwise. So I think one of the things that they have to keep in mind, and I believe Chris Drury will keep this in mind moving forward, is it's more about getting guys that can – Play in a spot that's specifically suited to their skill set and specifically fits the needs of your team, as opposed to just trying to collect as many stars as you can and hope that you find a way to make it work. Again, to me, they need to infuse this lineup, A, with more speed. And that's something that you, the people who listen to this podcast all the time, know I've been mentioning for. About two years now, I feel like the Rangers, to keep up with the best teams in the league, are going to need more foot speed. And B, they just need a more diversified approach. They need grinders who can implement the type of aggressive forecheck that wins at this time of year. They need guys who are going to do not necessarily the dirty work as in hitting guys. We've talked about this grit thing all the time. I'm not necessarily saying they need to be more physical. But I'm saying they need guys who have that winning edge to their game at this time of year. The guys who will do the little things that it takes to win and open things up for your stars like Panarin and Zabanajad and Kreider and those kind of guys. You need to build a well-rounded lineup, not just a lineup with a bunch of big names in it. And... I think that that is something that is going to be very prevalent on Chris Drury's mind going into this off season. I essentially see two paths that he could go down from here, but there's a lot of different directions that he could go within each path. One thing that I think, and this is probably the most likely scenario is if they can find a way to clear a little salary and the salary cap situation is going to be no joke this off season, My projection right now, based on the math that I've done, is they're going to have about $12.3 million in cap space to fill eight or nine spots, so that is not going to be easy. You're going to need to find a lot of cheap guys. You're probably going to need a couple guys at entry-level contracts to come up and contribute. But if they could clear a little salary, and the guy that you have all heard me talk about before, who I think could be vulnerable, and quite frankly, from his exit interview or his, his session with the media on breakup day, he made a comment where he said, you never know where you might be next season. So maybe he's aware of the possibility as well. But as much as the Rangers value Barclay Gaudreau and as good as he is as a fourth-line player, and I believe he is most certainly a championship-level fourth-line player, he was a championship-level third-line player with the Tampa Bay Lightning. If you could have that guy in your fourth line, you feel really good about that. But... Can you afford to pay a fourth liner over $3.6 million per year when you are so tight on cap space? That's a question I think the Rangers are going to be thinking about this offseason. And if a deal comes along that they can stomach, that they feel like brings a little bit of value back, maybe with a player or a pick or something like that, and helps them clear that salary cap space, that's a guy who I would keep my eye on. There really aren't that many other options when you look at all the guys that they have with no movement clauses. And then if they could clear that little bit of salary cap space, maybe that would give them the wiggle room to hunt for some of those hidden gems who spill or or fit, I should say, specific roles. I look at the Devils, and I, I think there's some pretty glaring examples on their roster. Of course, you look at Jack Hughes, you look at Nico Heisher, you look at Dougie Hamilton, you look at some of the big names that they have on that team. And of course, those are the guys that make that team go. But look at some of the guys who hurt the Rangers badly in this series. Eric Halla, Tomas Tatar, guys like that who you look at what they're making. Those aren't really high-paid guys. Those are veteran guys who have bounced around a little bit. But the Devils targeted them because they fit their system and they could help complement some of the star players on that lineup and now we see what those guys were able to do and how effective they were for the Devils. So for the Rangers, you might need to find your own versions of those guys who can, you know, maybe potentially play on a line with Artemi Panarin and help open things up for him, do some of the dirty work for him in the way that we saw Jesper Fast do it. And actually this is kind of a side note, but I do believe Jesper Fast is going to be a free agent uh, this summer. But it doesn't necessarily have to be him. I'm just saying guys along those lines, your scouting department, your analytics department are going to have to be involved and help you uncover some of these guys. And I think the Devils have done a really good job in those areas. I know their analytics department has grown, and they're a team that relies heavily on some of that stuff as well. But can they tweak the roster by adding the right pieces that fit these roles and, and help them become a more balanced team, a more complementary team, a team that has a system and sticks to that system and has a number of players who fit that system. So that's one path they could go down. And that's probably the less sexy path, probably the more likely path. The other thing, though, that I don't think we can dismiss is will they go for a bigger splash? by moving a core piece of this team. Now, again, that's probably not going to be the no-movement clause, guys. It's probably not going to be Panarin, Zabanajad, Kreider, Truba, Those guys, Trocek, they're not going anywhere because they have final say in it. It would be a huge surprise to see one of those guys go. The Rangers would have to convince them to waive their no-movement trade clause. But I don't think it would be a total shock a surprise maybe, but not a total shock, to see them discuss or have conversations about the possibility of moving one of their younger players. And there's probably the most buzz right now, from what I can tell, around Alexi Lafreniere. I'm not saying I think it's likely, but I do think it's something that right now, in this moment, with this loss still really fresh, could be part of the conversation in the next couple months leading into the summer. It wouldn't be just to get rid of him because you don't want him anymore. Of course, they'd love to keep him around. Of course, you still feel like there's more upside in there with him. But he's not the strongest skater. We've seen that. If you want your team to get faster, he's probably not going to help you in that area. And if there's another team that really covets him, and is going to be willing to give you a package that helps you fill multiple needs, a combination of young players with speed who you feel like fit your system, and draft picks and whatever else, well then, maybe that is something that the Rangers end up entertaining. Whether it's Lafreniere whether it's Capo Caco. I don't think it's going to be Philip Hedl now that they gave him that extension, and he's one of the fastest guys on the roster, and he's a center. There's a lot of reasons I don't see Hedl going anywhere. I think he's probably actually the safest of those three, believe it or not. Could it be Keandre Miller? I highly doubt that. I think they really want him to be a long-term part of this decor, but he is going into his first offseason as an RFA, and it is going to be really tight as far as finding the money to pay him. I doubt they would let Ryan Lindgren go. I think he's way too valuable, but he's a guy with a $3 million cap hit that could create a little bit of wiggle room. I'm not saying that I think that any of those things are going to happen. I'm saying I'm wondering if the chances of something like that happening have increased. I think the chances, if you ask me, are probably higher today than they were a year ago. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it means that I sense that some kind of change is coming. Very little would completely surprise me at this point. The Rangers loaded up for this season. They came up woefully short of what their goals were. And now I think that some type of change is going to come in one form or another. Now, speaking of that, that kind of transitions us into the first clip that I want to play for you guys. And this one is going to come from head coach Gerard Galant, who did speak to the media at breakup day on Wednesday. I know there's been a lot of rumors swirling about him, and I think that that is absolutely the first thing on Chris Drury's to-do list for this offseason, is to decide which direction he wants to go with the coach. Will Gallant stay around, or will he fish around for a change? Now, Gerard Gallant clearly has been reading and paying attention to these rumors as well, And as you're about to hear, he was not too happy about it. So you're going to hear a clip from him addressing us reporters on the final day, Wednesday, and expressing some of his displeasure about the rumors and sort of defending himself and backing up his own record and explaining why he thinks he should stay. So I'm going to play that clip for you guys, and then I'll come back and and we'll talk about it a little bit. And just for some context, when he came into the room, There was a brief moment of, I guess you could call it awkward silence, where everybody was kind of waiting for somebody to ask the first question. And he said something along the lines of, let's get it going. Normal day, I'm fine. So what you're going to hear right now is Dan Rosen, who you've heard on the show before from NHL.com, following up and asking him specifically if he had been told that he was fine by the Rangers. Fine meaning as in, you're going to stay here.
1: He said you're fine. Have you been told that? By who? Chris."
0: They haven't, to they haven't
1: talked to them. No, well, I mean, there's, I got no reason to think anything besides what people put out there. Like, I mean, I read the same thing you guys. I see the same posts and all that. But nobody from this organization told me anything. I'm coming in here <coughs> what I think was two absolute years. Mm-hmm. We had one bad week, us, So if, <laughs> if I can't uh, stand by my record, what I've done, I think there's something wrong. I think it's pretty good. And not just the record here, the record moving forward. But we're in New York, and that's what things, you know, people put things out there, and that's fine. I'll get over it.
2: How do you reflect on your second season here personally?
1: Like I just said, I think we averaged 108 points in two years. I think that was excellent. Mm-hmm. We had a great first season. We went to the, we lost to the Stanley Cup defending championship in the semifinals. Mm-hmm. This year, we lost in the first round, so... Did I have a tough two weeks? Did we have a tough two weeks? Yeah. But besides that, I can't believe I have to answer some of these questions about me
0: getting, like the getting fired, brought up by the media. Disappointing. All right, so there you have it. Gerard Glant, as you might have heard from that tone, was not particularly happy about the questions there. And listen, he's a hard on his sleeve kind of guy. And I respect him defending his record. I don't blame him for being ticked off. Quite frankly, I'm not sure how fair it really is to have him answer those questions without hearing anything from the top. And these rumors aren't going to die down until we hear directly from Team President Chris Drury. He's definitely staying, he's going, or whatever it might be that Chris Drury would say. We're still not sure when he'll speak. I know last year he did a call with the beat reporters a couple of days after breakup day, but we still haven't heard any word on that. And, and maybe it's because these discussions are ongoing behind the scenes and he doesn't want to come out and say anything until he has something to say. I don't know. But right now, all I can tell you is we haven't heard from Chris Drury. And I think until that happens, getting clarity on the situation won't really be there. It's going to sort of be this up in the air, wait and see kind of a thing. The one thing I would say in response to Gallant is that these rumors aren't coming out of thin air. I can speak personally and say I didn't write about the possibility of him being fired the other day because I want it to happen or I'm trying to will it to happen or I'm advising that they do it or anything like that. It's based on reporting. It's what I'm hearing. And it's pretty obvious if you follow a lot of the national reporters around the league that. Others are hearing the same thing as well. I want to be clear about this. I haven't reported that he's being fired, and I still do not know if that's going to happen. Right now, we do not know what's going to happen next. What I've heard and what I've written is that it is being, the word that was used to me is mulled, which is considered, discussed. It is a possibility at this point that we don't have a firm answer on. It's not the first time either. We've talked about this on this podcast before. I've written about this before. You go back to early December when the Rangers were slumping. They had come out of the gate. They lost. It was, I believe, 11 out of their first 26 games. They were not playing well at all. There was a lot of frustration in the locker room, and there was a lot of frustration up top, and a lot of you will remember we've gone over this moment several times, but the Rangers lost that game on December 3rd to the Chicago Blackhawks, and it was the Truba helmet toss game that got a lot of attention. That was a game where afterwards the captain came out and called them out. Gallant was calling them out at the time. Frustration was really starting to bubble up there. And at that point, I had heard from multiple sources, and I think we had Emily Kaplan from ESPN on the show around that time as well to talk about this, that there was a real possibility that he could be fired during the season and that the Rangers were potentially putting some feelers out to some other candidates. Then what happens from there, the Rangers go on this winning streak. They won seven in a row. They really turned things around. They were never out of playoff position again at any point from that point moving forward. They they finished the season from a wins loss perspective, really strong they, they took off from that point. So That quieted down all of that talk. That certainly made Gerard Gallant safe for the time being. Obviously, what happened in the playoffs was always going to be really, really, really important in the evaluation process. And what happened in the playoffs was disappointing. We just went over all that. The Rangers kept getting worse as that series went along, and the Devils kept getting better, and the Rangers got eliminated way earlier than... Gallant or Chris Drury or any of the players were anticipating or planning on. I should also make a little side note here that on the 32 Thoughts podcast, which is hosted by our buddy Jeff Merrick, who you've heard on the show before, and Elliot Friedman, who's one of the most tuned in insiders that there are, Friedman mentioned on the podcast that there was some sort of an argument between management and the coaching staff during that series. He said that it was a situation where apparently people heard the argument from behind closed doors. I mean, I was around the team every single day throughout that. I can tell you I never personally heard any argument going on like that, but I can also tell you that there was definitely a lot of frustration from both management and the coaching staff and the players. A lot of people were disappointed with the way that that series unfolded, and it sounds like tempers flared on at least one occasion based on what Elliot Friedman is reporting. So clearly we know that – There's been moments where there has been tension. You go back to December, and as I've reported and others have reported, there were some initial preliminary discussions about would they consider a coaching change in season before they ultimately turn things around. And then we get to the playoffs where the Rangers have super high expectations and they fall flat. So the questions about what's next – from the coaching position, are all valid. It's just a matter of the Rangers and Chris Drury making a decision on which way they're going to go with it. It's nothing personal against Gerard Gallant. I understand why from his seat it can feel that way, but that is certainly not where it's coming from, from myself, and I I certainly don't think from any of my colleagues as well. Now, Gallant coming out and speaking to us on Wednesday, it's – very reasonable for people to perceive that as a good sign. It very well may be a good sign. But again, until we get clarity from jury, I think these questions are going to linger. The big question here, and in this podcast forum we can certainly discuss it, is should the Rangers move on? And, And to me, that is very much up for debate. I don't buy into the narrative that he's lost the locker room. A handful of players have talked about how much they respect him, and I believe that's genuine. But at the same time, I I do wonder if things got a little stale this year. I know, and I've reported this in the past, that the line juggling was frustrating for some of the players. That was constant, really, throughout the season. I know that some of the deflecting of blame when things weren't going well and some of the excuse-making, I've written about that as well, that was rubbing certain people in the organization the wrong way, especially during that late November, early December period that we've discussed. And I'm also not sure how well-suited this system is to the personnel. Gerard Gallant likes a simple game, a direct game, a heavy four-checking game, a hard-working physical game. And if you look at the Rangers' roster right now, it doesn't work a whole lot. We talked about their five-on-five struggles, and it seems like a system that's maybe a bit more innovative, a bit more intricate, a bit more skill-oriented might benefit the current personnel that the Rangers have. Now, if they can get faster, if they can get some of those grinders that we talked about that I think they are probably going to aim to get this offseason, then that might be better suited for the way that Gallant wants them to play. But it does seem like He's constantly just looking for guys that are going to work hard, looking for guys that are going to play direct, looking for guys that are always going to think to shoot the puck first and create a lot of traffic around the net. And the Rangers don't have a lot of guys who profile that way. And that seemed to be what was happening in the series with the Devils as well. Galant just repeatedly kept talking about getting to the net, getting more pucks to the net, creating more traffic, and the Rangers weren't doing that. So that message didn't seem to be resonating well enough to make the players actually go out and do it. Now, he took issue with people saying that he didn't make adjustments in the series. Publicly, he never really went into detail with us. Again, the most glaring things that he talked about in the season were the traffic stuff and the pucks to the net stuff. And then there was that moment after game four when he called the team out questioned their effort, called them lazy, and was hoping to generate some kind of a motivational response from that, which never really came. So that's what we heard him talk about publicly behind closed doors. I'm assuming that they made some more intricate tactical changes, but whatever they did obviously didn't work. I think it's fair to say that Lindy Ruff won the coaching matchup in that series, just like it's fair to say that the devil's players won the matchup that happened on the ice between the players. So That is how I would assess that. Now, with all that being said, it's certainly hard to argue with the success that he's had here. He got the team back into the playoffs for the first time last year, ending that five-year drought. They were rebuilding. They were getting better, but they still didn't get over that hump until he got here, so he has to get some credit for that. They have, under his coaching, the second best points percentage in franchise history, the only guy with a better points percentage, is Mike Keenan. And he only coached the team for one year in 94 when they won the Cup. And Glant's points percentage is only a little bit behind him. I think Keenan is a 667 and Glant is 662. So one of the, as far as points percentage is concerned, winning as coaches in franchise history. And he had a great run last year. He took a team that a lot of people didn't expect to go as far as they did all the way to the Eastern Conference Final. Was a Jack Adams Award finalist last year. A lot of good things happened while Gerard Gallant was here. So that all works in his favor, and that's what he was talking about in that clip that you just heard. He's defending his record. He's defending his resume. On the other hand, these playoffs were extremely disappointing. It's kind of this chicken or the egg thing. Is it the players? We talked about all the players that fell short and didn't perform well in this series. Or is it the coaching? Could the coach have done more to help those players, to unlock their potential, to get them into positions to succeed? It's a really tough thing to decide one or the other. For me, it's almost always a combination of the two. And I think in this situation, it certainly applies. I don't think we can put all the blame on the coach. I certainly don't think that's fair. But it is fair to wonder, could there be more done that get the players out of that rut that they seem to be in for a large portion of this series? So that's kind of a difficult one to assess, you know, whether we're going to say this percentage of blame on this side or this percentage of blame on that side. But what we also know is that the easy scapegoat is almost always the coach. And if somebody's going to fall on the sword for this disappointment – he would certainly be a guy that I think would be the least surprising to a lot of people, especially when, as we mentioned, so many of the top players have no movement clauses. So it's not like you're going to easily be able to ship one of them out of town. So if they're looking to shake things up, if they're looking to send a message that what happened is unacceptable, there's obviously a chance that the coach could be the fall guy for that. To me, changing coaches just two years into a guy's tenure It does create this feeling of instability. It does seem kind of panicky. You don't want to be going through a new coach every two years. So I think that that might be causing some hesitation here. I also think it's very possible, actually very likely, that the Rangers don't want to do that unless they feel really good about having a replacement in place, and that's kind of how we can wrap this conversation up. There could be a scenario And with each passing hour, it becomes more likely that this is going to be the case in my eyes, that this uncertainty could linger for a while. I don't think that Chris Drury, knowing how calculated and meticulous he is, I don't think that he wants to fire a coach that they've had reasonable success with unless he feels really good about having the guy that he's going to replace him with lined up. He needs to feel like there's an upgrade out there that he's anxious and excited to hire or else he might not do it. So a lot of stuff could be going on behind the scenes right now to put out feelers to see what the possibilities are. There are three big names out there as far as guys that have won cups. Peter LaViolette just got fired by the Capitals. Daryl Sutter just got fired by the Flames. I don't think either one of those guys are particularly exciting, and I don't sense, at least initially, that there's a lot of interest in those guys from the Rangers. The guy who has been talked about the most, the guy whose name I heard coming up just in different conversations with reporters or other people that were around that series with the Devils even before the Rangers lost it, was Joel Quinville. Now, this one would be an absolute lightning rod of a hire for the Rangers if they were to go down that path. The quick background for those of you that don't know, Quinville, a highly successful NHL coach, won three Cups in Chicago with the Blackhawks. Coach Patrick Kane there, coached Artemi Panarin there, has some familiarity with some of those guys. But he also was basically banned from the league a year or so ago when an independent investigation came out that showed that while he was the Chicago Blackhawks head coach and they had the video coach who sexually assaulted and abused a prospect, Kyle Beach, back in 2010, that when Quinville was made aware that this video coach was being accused of doing these things, he basically swept it under the rug. At the time, the Blackhawks were in the playoffs. It sounds like he didn't want it to be a distraction. And instead of right away outing the guy and doing the necessary, proper, right thing to do, he sort of tried to keep it quiet, it sounds like, or was one of a group of people who decided it was best to keep it quiet to not be a distraction during the playoffs. And then they quietly had the video coach resign and sort of fade off into the distance without ever going public about it. So he was involved in a really bad, ugly controversy and played a role in trying to keep it quiet, essentially. So morally, ethically, how would Rangers fans feel about having a guy like that come and be your head coach? Now, he might not even be allowed to, to be a head coach, he is not allowed to take any job without approval from Commissioner Gary Bettman. So that would be a step in the process. And it sounds like maybe inroads have been made or maybe inquiries have been made about whether or not Quinville might try to do that. It certainly, I think a lot of people believe if he did have an opportunity to coach again, he would like to. The question is, would the Rangers go down that path? To me, it would be a hard pill to swallow. I think it would turn a lot of fans off. Again, ethically, morally, it would be a very questionable decision. Of course, you'd want to hear what the guy has to say if he would address it all openly. To my knowledge, at least that I've read, I haven't seen a whole lot of his side of the story, but what we know from the investigation does not look good for Quinville at all. And so that would just kind of be a a shady, not a great feeling surrounding a, a new hire for the Rangers. What I find myself wondering all the time, and it seems it happens in all sports, but it seems more prevalent in the NHL than anywhere else is there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of outside of the box thinking when it comes to these coaching hires, the same recycled guys just keep getting put back into the vacuum and popping out in a new place. Like, Is there nobody out there who you can find that would be a little bit more exciting, that would bring some fresh perspective, that would maybe do things a little bit differently and and could help take this team to the next level? We've seen first-time coaches go other places, or at least first-time NHL coaches go other places and have success, like a Jared Bednar, a John Cooper, guys along those lines. I know the Rangers are absolutely in win-now mode. I, I had a source make a point to me about this the other day when we were having a conversation about this, that you look at all these guys on the Rangers roster that are either 30 or above 30, Kreider, Sabanajad, Panarin, you don't have a forever window with those guys. So you don't necessarily want to hire a head coach who you feel like is going to need time to grow and develop into the role. But I also don't know if there's a rule against a first-time head coach having success (laughs) do the only guys that are able to have success guys that have actually done the job before, I I personally am not so sure about that. I would like to see a little more of an open mind to that kind of thing, but I don't know if that's where the Rangers are at. The, The sense that I get is that it would probably be, a guy who we've heard before, who we've seen on an NHL bench before as a head coach, and a guy who's had success before, which is why you're going to hear the names like Quinville floated if the Rangers do decide to make a change. Again, I don't know if they're going to at this point. At the time of this recording, we don't have an answer. Maybe by the time this episode comes out, things will be different, but I kind of have a feeling it won't be based on us getting later into the day here on Thursday, breakup days in the rearview mirror. This could linger for a little while. We're going to have to wait and see. News could break at any moment, but we could also kind of have this uncertainty last for a little while longer. So we're, we're going to see about that. But I think I hopefully summed up all my different thoughts about this coaching situation in Gerard Gallant with my long-winded answer there. Now I want to move on to the next topic and start talking about some specific players. And we're going to start with Patrick Kane. He was, I think in a lot of ways, the most newsworthy player to speak on Wednesday because he revealed that he has been playing through an injury, what we all suspect to be a hip injury, and admitted that it's hampered him. That's kind of been this unspoken thing all season. It's been talked about widely with reporters. I know we've discussed it before. But as far as Kane directly addressing it, Wednesday was the first time. And he was pretty open and honest about it and said that, He was not at 100% during his time with the Rangers. He said he's been dealing with this for a couple years, and he said that there's a very real possibility that it's going to require surgery this offseason. He said he's hoping to have a final decision on that from the doctors within a week or so. But hearing him talk about dealing with the injury and not being able to make certain plays that he's accustomed to making, it really kind of makes you wonder if this is all worth it for the Rangers to make this trade. They knew that he had this injury, and they still pulled it off. I think they had kind of turned their back on it, and they weren't willing to pay the super high price that the Blackhawks were asking for initially, knowing that the hip was a concern. But once the price tag came down, because Kane made it clear that New York was his preference, obviously they got back involved. But with the benefit of hindsight, it looks like maybe that was a path they would have been better off not going down. Although I will say this about Kane. As far as interactions with him and dealing with the swarm of media that he had to deal with every year, he was a pro about that. He was a really good sport about it. An open book, at least in my dealings with him, and, and you know, very understanding of, of what came with the star power that he brought and all the attention that he was going to get and took a lot of time to sit at his locker room every day and answer a whole lot of questions. So definitely appreciative of that. It it also, though, makes you wonder that if he does get this problem fixed, what does that mean for him moving forward? What does that mean for him next season? Can he get back to closer to the level that we're used to seeing him play at? He was also asked about whether or not he might return to New York once all of this is cleared up and give it another go with the Rangers next season, and that's why I'm going to play for you what he had to say when he was asked that question.
2: Of course, I would love to be back. I mean, it would be... Uh... You know like I said if, if I feel like if I you know could feel better and uh and, and you know with this team
0: and with this opportunity I would love that love that chance I know they have you know young guys to sign and uh proper probably other priorities but um yeah
2: I like I said I don't have a bad thing to say about the organization or the situation I thought it was it was an amazing experience for me and uh I know, like, you know, I'm turning 35 next year, but it's not like I feel old, you know?
0: It's like, uh, you know, I still feel pretty young. I feel like the passion is still there. Like, I still, you know, know that I could be a top player if, you know, if my focus is, like, solely on hockey instead of, like, how I feel that the right? All right, there you have it. So it certainly sounds like there is some interest, and he would love the opportunity to stay in New York, but it's also worth mentioning that, He did refer to the Rangers as they on a handful of occasions, kept saying things like they will get there one day. They have a lot of things going for them, that sort of thing. So he knows the reality of the situation. I think he's a guy who pays pretty close attention given their salary cap situation, which we talked about before a little over $12 million to fill out the rest of the roster. And that includes paying Lafreniere and Miller It's definitely unlikely, in my opinion, and I think in his opinion, that he'll be back. The same thing goes for Vladimir Tarasenko, who spoke on Wednesday. He talked about how much he loved his time in New York, too, expressed the disappointment about not getting the job done, that he was here to get done as far as going on a playoff run and winning a Stanley Cup. He said he'd love the opportunity to be back here, but I think it might be even more difficult for the Rangers to bring him back, I think, because he's younger and the situation that he's in, he's four years younger or three years younger than Patrick Kane. I think he's likely to command A, more years, and probably even be a higher average annual value. So that will make it difficult for the Rangers to bring him back. Although he, I think, was a better fit than Kane. Although Kane, as we heard, was hampered. So 100%, who knows? I've told people this before. Both of them coming back is impossible. One of them coming back is very unlikely. But if the Rangers were to move a little bit of salary and get one of those guys to take, I mean, it would have to be a massive discount. It would have to be like playing for a million or $2 million a season, something like that. You can't ever say never, but it seems like something that I wouldn't get your hopes very high about. And Tarasenko is a guy who said, You know, his main thing is he wants to find a place where he can win. He wants to take a run at another Stanley Cup. And both of them pretty openly talked about they're going to have to explore free agency and see what happens. And it sounded certainly like they will be talking to other teams as well. Of all the pending unrestricted free agents, and there aren't that many, it's really just Kane Tarasenko. It's the trade deadline, guys. It's those two, Nico Mikola and then Tyler Mott. Of those four... I think the guy who has the best chance to return is Tyler Mott. We talked to him yesterday. He was all smiles as far as the conversation that he had just had. He had just come out of his meeting with Chris Drury, it sounded like. He said they had great dialogue was the way that he phrased it. And he made a comment that stood out to me when he said it. He was being asked about the uncertainty of free agency and the fact that the Rangers had traded for him two years in a row. And it was clear that both sides liked being with each other, but would they be able to make it work beyond that? Or was he going to have to deal with the craziness and the uncertainty of free agency again? And he made this comment. I'll read the quote. Sometimes there are solutions before you get there. And that made me say, hmm, I wonder what him and Chris Drury just talked about. So it sounded to me like there was feeling expressed by both sides that they would like to continue this relationship. And Mott ended up signing with the Ottawa Senators last year for 1.35 million. The Rangers were so tight on cap space that even going that high was a little more than they could stomach given how tight they knew their roster situation was going to be. That's why you saw them brought in Jimmy Vc on a PTO and signing him to the veteran minimum. I think my hunch would be that Mott is aware that if he wants to stay here, he might have to come down from that $1.35 million price tag a little bit. But having went through what he went through last year, where that was the most he was able to milk out of any team, and it was only on a one-year deal, that maybe if the Rangers gave him a multi-year deal, a little more long-term security, that he would be willing to compromise at a number that would be good for the Rangers. That's just... Not really based on any reporting, just based on, on the feeling that I got in that moment. But it seemed like there was optimism coming from Mott that he might be able to stay. So that, that's something that I took away as a little bit of a tidbit to come out of breakup day. Now I want to go and talk about some of the guys who are under contract. And I want to start with the guy who's facing more criticism than anybody. I touched on it this, more toward the beginning of the show. That would be Artemi Panarin. You guys have heard me talk before about how much fun he is to deal with. Always upbeat, always pleasant, always has a smile on his face. He's just a guy who you sense loves life, loves playing hockey, loves everything that comes with being a part of the NHL. And that's not to say he doesn't work hard. This is a guy who teammates will tell you they walk into the rink sometimes in the morning and they find him out there on the ice working on these, as Jacob Truba once said to me, passes to nobody. So I'm not trying to diminish that he doesn't take things seriously, but he's usually a pretty loose guy, a guy who knows how to have fun, doesn't take himself too seriously, and is definitely a funny, pleasant guy to deal with. So the mood that he had when he came into the locker room to speak on Wednesday was very much different. It was as down as I've ever seen him. When he spoke, one of the first things he said was he feels empty. He spoke at length about the frustration that he feels coming off of this disappointing playoffs. And a lot of it was about pressure and that getting to him and kind of overthinking things and that snowballing as the series went on. So what you're about to hear is a clip where I asked him how much of the postseason struggles for him are a mental thing. And now you'll hear his answer. I don't want to
2: say it's like, it's mental thing. And that's why, like, I don't have points. I just, like I say, I I just don't think like, honestly, last playoffs, I turn over like every pack (laughs) this year. I work on that. It's not that bad. And then. I don't know, it's just, I don't want to say like, excuse some excuses. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say like it's mentally and then I'm like, feel terrible in a playoff. Now every game I'm like, coming, excited, and then like, trying again, again, again. But not work, not work, not work every time. So. All
0: right, so first off, Really appreciate the candor. I know it's not easy to answer those questions when, when the heat is on you like that, but he stood up and he took it and he tried his best and you heard him there. I've told you guys this before. I know he's not comfortable speaking on camera in English, but when it's just a few of us beat reporters, he, he's been really good about trying to do it and he doesn't give himself enough credit. His English is, is getting much, much better each year, and it's very easy for us to have conversations and things like that with him. So I think he did a pretty good job of expressing himself there. And what you hear is a guy who is very clearly saying, I don't want to make excuses. He, he repeated that a few times throughout this interview. I don't want anything to sound like an excuse. I wasn't good enough, and and that's the bottom line. But it also goes to show you, and to me it was pretty eye-opening to hear about the pressure and how that can really begin to fester and how one bad game can lead to two bad games, and it creates this feeling. He said he tried to go to the rink every day. He felt excited about the game, but it seemed like once he got on the ice and things weren't going his way, it was hard for him to block out those negative thoughts. And to me, it's a reminder, and this is something that I think, As reporters, we probably lose sight of sometimes, and as fans, definitely based on some of the social media comments, I think people lose sight of sometimes. But these guys are human, and emotions that you and I might feel every day, well, these guys feel that same kind of stuff. And when you're under the microscope, and you feel like everybody's depending on you, and you know you're the highest paid player on the team, and you know that everybody expects you to produce, and and it's not happening... Well, that can be really tough to deal with. And I think we need to have some sympathy for that. But with that being said, as much as you feel for the guy, the concerns about his playoff no-show aren't going away. Because last year, 16 points in 20 games, that doesn't look terrible. But when you consider that he averages well over a point per game in the regular season, that doesn't look so great. And anybody who watched him play last year could just see that he wasn't as effective and as dangerous and didn't have the puck on his stick and make things happen nearly as much as he did in the regular season. That was evident to all of us last year. And he's been pretty open and talking about that and talking about some of these same confidence issues creeping into his mind last season. And now this season, it seems to get even worse. I mentioned before, six straight games without a point in this series. That had not happened to him at any previous point in his eight-year career, regular season or playoffs. This is the first time at any stage for him in the NHL that he's gone six straight games without a point. And when you're identifying reasons why the Rangers went out in the fashion that they did in this series, the lack of production from their stars is at the very top of the list, and Panarin is the guy that they expect offense from more than anybody. That's why they went out and got him. That's what he's paid to do. And he knows that he didn't do enough of it. And and he's clearly upset by that. He's clearly embarrassed and ashamed about that. And he did his best, I think, to take accountability and take responsibility in this interview that you heard right here or part of it. At least I wrote a lot more about this. I would encourage everybody to go to loha.com sports Rangers to check that out because I wrote a story on Thursday that goes a lot deeper into all this. But one of the questions that we addressed in that was where do they go from here? And I've seen, I've gotten the emails, I've gotten the tweets. There are some people, Rangers fans who, who for a while loved this guy. Think about all the points that he racked up being a heart finalist choosing New York and taking less money to be here, the leg kicks, all the razzle-dazzle, all the incredibly fun plays that we've seen him make in his four years with the Rangers, but you feel that tie turning a little bit, and there certainly seems to be some fans who are turning against him based on what we've seen from him in the playoffs, but I talked about this earlier in the show, and I'll reiterate it here. The chances of him being traded, while it's not as... Crazy of a possibility to me as it would have been at any previous point in his contract. It's still extremely far fetched because of the no movement clause and because of the fact that even if they were to convince him to accept a trade somewhere else, look around the league. How many teams can afford an $11.6 million guy in this current cap era? It's really hard to identify a team that would be able to do that. And then you also have to shorten that list to teams that he would even consider it with. I don't don't know if he would consider it anywhere. I honestly don't think he would. I know his family is settled here. He loves it here. He wants to be a Ranger. He wants to make it work here. And what you have to hope for is that through A, the Rangers – rethinking the shape of this roster a little bit in the ways that we talked about, adding more speed, adding guys who can help open up some ice for him because that's clearly an issue when he doesn't have as much time and space to work with and teams are able to smother him. That is what shuts him down. So they got to find a way to free up some space for this guy to make the plays that he makes. And he also talked about a little bit in that interview. Last year, the turnovers were such a big topic. And I looked this up. He averaged over two giveaways per game in the playoffs last year, and he said, I felt like I was turning pucks over all the time, and that was something that he tried to work on and get better at. Well, he did a better job of protecting the puck against the Devils. He was averaging only about one giveaway per game against New Jersey in this first-round series, but at what cost? The result was a guy who just didn't look like himself. He looked like a shell of himself. He wasn't making very many plays that you noticed at all over the course of the game. So he needs to find that balance of when can I open things up? When can I take the risk and when do I need to not do it? And I would lean toward letting him take more risk because that's what makes him special, but he's got to find that confidence and that balance and that yin and yang of those situations and knowing when to go and when to, make the safe play. He's not going to be a guy that dumps the puck. That's not what you want him to do, but make the safer play in in certain situations, but also know that this is an East West kind of player. And to let him do what he does, you got to let him make some East West plays. So that is certainly a big part of it. And then the other part of it is you, you got to hope that this mental side of things that through experience and through going through some of these trials and tribulations that in the long run that makes him a better player that he finds a way to overcome that. He's a really thoughtful smart guy and you have to hope and believe that some of these low points will lead to him kind of figuring this out in the long run. If you are the Rangers or if you're a Rangers fan, knowing he's under contract for three more years. That is what you have to hope. And and it certainly sounds like that is going to be his focus going into the summer. Now, speaking of pressure, I'm going to transition now to our next interview. And we talked to Igor Shosturkin on Wednesday. And I would say it was, in my opinion, probably the best interview we did with him this season. There weren't a whole lot of interviews. We've talked about that before. But he talked about that pressure that he felt this year. And he had an interesting answer, I thought, when I asked him to evaluate his season. So let's listen to that.
2: Honestly, I'm not happy about this season, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of pressure after last season. So, uh, like, uh, I thought it's going to be more easy to play, but uh, I had a lot of pressure. Uh, Benny helped me so much for that, so... It was a tough season but uh, I learned a lot and uh, I got some experience for this one and I think like like uh, I, I changed my mind after the season so I think in uh, next season it's going to be
0: different, eager. Next season, it's going to be a different Igor. You got to love that last line. (laughs) Got to love when a guy refers to himself in the third person. That was a great way to end it. We've talked before about how guarded and reluctant he can be when it comes to speaking to the media. And this season, post-game, didn't talk to him a whole lot. He never really seemed too thrilled about doing it. But he was refreshingly open on Wednesday. It finally seems like with the season over, He's able to exhale and open up. I think during the season, he's so locked in and laser-focused and hard on himself that he really doesn't seem to enjoy doing these sessions with the media. But he, he, was, he was pretty candid, I thought, on Wednesday. And that answer showed what a lot of us kind of thought was going on throughout the season. He admitted that the expectations took a toll after he won the Vesna and had such an historic season last year. He struggled with that and living up to that and putting so much pressure on himself to succeed. And when the team wasn't winning right away, I think he was really hard on himself about that. I think that's part of what makes him great. But through his own maturation, and he definitely credited goalie coach Benoit Allaire for helping him with that, but he needed to get over that hump of learning to not, get tense and not put so much pressure on himself. And what you saw was he wasn't himself for the first handful of months, but once he turned it on, he reminded everybody how good he can be those last couple months of the season. He was really, really good. And in the playoffs, I thought he was the best player on either side in that series. If it weren't for Igor, it's hard to envision the Rangers even winning some of the games that they did or making that series as close as it ended up being with it going seven games. He ends up with a 931 save percentage in that series, a 1.96 goals against average. And if you look at some of the advanced stats, he led pretty much every goalie category for every team in the playoffs. So he was the best goalie in the first round of the playoffs this season. And despite his best efforts, wasn't quite able to carry the Rangers over the finish line. Still, last guy that you can blame is Igor. He was really, really good for the Rangers in that series, and a lot of his teammates spoke about this, they felt like they let him down. So that was something that a lot of different guys expressed. It felt a little bit like, and I've heard some fans say this as well, felt a little bit like a Henrik Lundqvist situation where the goalie was doing everything that he could to drag his team across the finish line, and he wasn't getting enough help in front of him, and that was very much the story of what happened in the first-round series. But we got to give Igor a lot of credit because he played really well. He rebounded from what was a very uneven season for him, Those last couple months of the regular season, he was really good. And in the playoffs, he was on top of his game and gave the Rangers every chance to win that series. So watch out next year. It seems like he got his swagger back. And that is certainly very good news for the Rangers. Now, I want to finish with the captain, Jacob Truba, who you're going to hear from right now. You're going to hear two questions. I asked him about lessons learned and whether this disappointment can fuel the Rangers or propel the Rangers to bigger and better things in the future. And then you're also going to hear our friend, Molly Walker, ask him about his first season as the captain and sort of dealing with that and how he felt like it went for him. So let's hear from Jacob Trouba right now. That's the goal. I think uh, it's
2: never a straight, straight line to success. Um, it gets bumpy, there's ups and downs throughout the season, throughout the, whatever, this has been a four year stretch for me, there's been ups and downs, I think uh, if you step back and look at the the whole thing though, it's this thing's trending upwards. I'm proud to be here, I'm happy to be here, this is where I want to be, um, and I think, I think we're going to figure it out here. Jacob, did you
1: learn anything about
2: yourself in your first season as captain? <laughs> um yeah I mean it's it's not easy it's uh something I'm really proud of um it's hard to sit here and say that after the, the finish we had but uh, when it comes to the leadership aspect of it it's uh I feel like I I gave it uh, everything I had this year and uh, I'm, I'm proud of the work I did in that aspect
0: there you have it I think we're going to figure it out here. That was the message from the captain. That was honestly the message from a lot of the veteran guys that we spoke with in the locker room. Those guys took it really hard. I mean, Chris Kreider is always the most emotional in these moments. He still, two days later, just looks so sad. And he takes these things so much to heart and cares so much about the results, especially at this stage of his career. And Truba said it. A lot of those veteran guys, the, the sense as they get older, as they play more and more years in the league, is that they only get so many kicks at the can. Nothing is guaranteed. You never know when your opportunity is going to come or how many opportunities you're going to get to ultimately win the championship, which is what the veteran group on this team is extremely focused on doing. The message from Truba, from Kreider, from Mika Zibanejad, from the guys that set the tone in that locker room is a very selfless message. It's always team first. It's always about the process. It's always about building toward their goal of winning a championship. And those guys were all down last year when they lost, but I think they were also proud of what they had accomplished and felt like it was something to build on. This year, I asked Kreider this question, what's the difference in the feeling between the two years? This year, he said, we had a lot more hockey Left in us. And they all want the message to, especially the young guys on the team, to be that this needs to fuel them. This needs to motivate them. This needs to be a humbling experience that makes them better in the long run. And you heard a few guys mention it. I know that it's something that has been talked about amongst, whether it's reporters or people that have written stuff, or something that I think a lot of us kind of think back to because it's the most recent examples. You look at the Colorado Avalanche. You look at the Tampa Bay Lightning, the two most recent champions in the NHL. Now, both of those teams are eliminated now, but they've been the two most recent champions. Those teams had to go through adversity. They had early exits from the playoffs. They endured heartbreak. And ultimately, that is what they needed to push them to take their game to the next level to make them a championship-caliber team. It's not just about assembling talent. It's about experience and getting to the point where you know what it takes to win at this time of year. And a lot of times, the best teams don't always win. These NHL playoffs, have we've seen, are an absolute crapshoot. The Bruins are out. The Avalanche are out already. The Rangers are now out. The teams that I think a lot of people were picking to win the whole thing, some of them went out in the first round, Boston being the team that I think most people looked at as the favorite. So it goes to show you how fleeting this stuff can be. But as Mika Zabanajad said the other day, all you can control from here is what do you do with it? Where do you go from here? How does this factor into your game for next season? How does this push you throughout the offseason? So I think what a lot of those guys try to end with Some of them, especially Kreider, where it looks like they're almost fighting back tears. But the message that they try to end with is this needs to be something that pushes us further. It's a disappointment, and that disappointment needs to be something that you feel down deep. You should feel angry about it. You should feel ticked off about it. But what do you do with it from here is the next question. We're not going to get that answer for at least another year. Could be multiple years. That's <laughs> probably the last thing a lot of you guys want to hear. But what we need to, I think, consider now is where do the Rangers go from here? That's all there is. We, we can analyze last season, and trust me, we're going to do that. We spent a lot of time doing it on this week's show. I'm going to spend a lot of time writing about it in the coming weeks and months, but I'm also going to spend a lot of time looking ahead. What do the Rangers do next? Where do they go from here? How do they get better? Because – They've established themselves now as a playoff team. They've established themselves as a contender, but that is not what they envision. That is not what they want, and that is certainly not what you, the fans, want. Now it's all about becoming a championship team. It would be kind of poetic if they were able to get it done next year. Next year will be the 30th anniversary of the 1994 team that won the Stanley Cup. So I'm sure that will be a storyline and a theme that we're going to discuss a lot more as we look ahead to next season. I know a lot of you are hurting right now. Trust me, the feeling in the locker room was that a lot of those guys are hurting as well, but I thought it would be good to finish with hearing from Truba about his first season as captain, and I do think that he's been a guy who wore his heart on his sleeve, did a lot of different things out front in front of the cameras or you saw him throwing the helmet or that kind of stuff, but also behind the scenes to try to lead. And I think that he strikes me as the kind of person who will grow into that role even more so in the coming years, but even more than that, his message about believing in the team and how they use this moving forward and going through the ups and downs that we've seen other recent champions go through. So that I guess is maybe a somewhat hopeful message we can end it on. Trust me, there's going to be criticisms and there's going to be stuff that we nitpick and we're going to be very curious to see what especially Chris Drury does this summer, whether it's the coaching stuff or whether it's where he goes with the roster from here. That stuff is pivotal in this pursuit of a championship. But I also think that at this time we can take a moment to sort of reflect on what the players are saying and what the players are feeling in these moments of disappointment and how they're trying to look ahead or just starting to try to look ahead to how they can spin this maybe into a positive in the future, how this will push them to potentially be better. So with that, we're going to end this week's jam packed episode of the podcast. Our plan for the next podcast, this is a loose plan. We're going to have to see how things play out. I'm going to wait until there's some kind of news for us to talk about before we do our next episode. I'm certainly working on a handful of more stories, so it's not like I'm gonna disappear, but I also, it's been a long seven and a half, eight months of pretty much nonstop working. So I'm gonna try to take a deep breath here and maybe we go a week or two weeks or something like that without a podcast. If it ends up becoming clear that no news is coming, no coaching change is coming, nothing like that, I'll circle back within a few weeks and let you guys know, and we'll certainly have a podcast coming out in the not-so-distant future. I'm not going to let multiple months go by or anything like that. But for now, let's wait. Could have a podcast again next week if we have some news. Otherwise, I might give it a week or two before we come back. So I will keep you guys posted via Twitter and all that as far as the plan. I want to give a big thank you to not only Tom Deonora, who submitted this week's intro track that you're about to hear again right now, but everybody who submitted intro tracks, when we come back, we have one more to get to, and then we're going to sort through which one we end up keeping permanently. And I especially want to thank all of you who listen, whether it's every week, whether it's once in a while, whatever it is, obviously we prefer you to be every week, but if it's once in a while, we appreciate that too. Your passion comes through every week. When, whether it's submitting questions or giving us feedback or whatever it might be, even just downloading and listening. We pay attention to that stuff too. And we appreciate you guys so much. You guys are the best. I try to be as honest with you as I can every week. I try to make it as conversational as I can every week. This is a really, really exciting and fun forum for me because I feel like it's us just talking sports us having a conversation, me talking directly to the audience and giving you my perspective from what I see and what I report on and what I observe in the locker room and behind the scenes. So it's been a blast this season. I know it didn't end the way a lot of you guys wanted it to, but I hope you've appreciated the coverage. I definitely appreciate all of you. I love all of you and I hope you stay well. I hope you, you know, maybe you enjoy the Stanley cup playoff, but if you want to turn it off, that's fine too. The weather's getting nicer. So get outside, enjoy it. Be safe. Be well, and I will talk to you all very, very soon.